Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome back to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. My name is Don Payne and we're glad to have you with us. Uh, Several years ago, actually just a couple of years ago, I was doing a training session for an agency of the federal government and met a woman with this agency whose full-time job was to interview retiring employees. And I told her at the time that you have the coolest job in the world. Just got to meet constantly with people who were leaving the agency for retirement and downloading everything they had learned. That was her job, to capture the learning from people who had spent years with the agency so that that learning could be folded back into the agency and they build on that. And I I thought that was such a cool thing to be able to do. And this week, we have an opportunity to do something similar to that because we're honored to have some time with our, our friend and our colleague, Dr. Monty Haas, who will be retiring from his faculty post in the counseling division here at Denver Seminary at the end of this current spring semester. Monty, welcome to Thank the podcast. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate being here. I'm glad, so, so glad you're here and wanted to have an opportunity to interact with you as you are transitioning into retirement and have you reflect a bit on uh, your time here. And so I've got just a number of things, number of conversation points I want to have with you. But first of all, for listeners, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself, maybe for those who don't know you, tell a little bit about your background, your history at Denver Seminary, and so forth. Okay. Well, uh, Don, I've been at Denver Seminary in a faculty position for about 17 years now. Um, I'm licensed as a psychologist here in Colorado and also maintain a small counseling practice on the side. Um, my history with Denver Seminary goes way, way back because I was a student here in uh, the 1930s? Er- uh, not that long. Okay. Not that long. Uh, I started in 1980. Okay. Um, spent three years here and actually got my MDiv. I took one counseling course, was not. Uh, Looking at going into counseling was rather looking at church ministry um, and ended up making some changes along the way. What changed it? Uh, what changed it? Um, kind of broadly, I like to say it's more of a narrowing of my own spiritual gifting. Um, I'd worked in churches. I came here for my MDiv, ended up working at a church in central Illinois, and uh, just kind of fell into doing a lot of pastoral counseling. And at that time, realizing, uh, first of all, for most of the people in the church I was at, they weren't going to go to somebody who wasn't a believer. Mm-hmm. And the reality is there weren't very many of those around. In other words, there weren't, it wasn't that there was a dearth of believers, but there were not a lot of uh, believers who had a good, solid biblical foundation who also did counseling. Okay. Um, and found that as I fell into that role a little bit, it worked. Um, for some strange reason, God used those things and impacted people's lives, and I loved it. But I also realized quickly I had no clue what I was doing. So that kind of sent me back to get my uh, doctorate in uh, clinical psychology. Where did you do that? Uh, Rosemead School of Psychology, which is part of Biola University. Okay. Okay. And from there, then started your own practice? What, what no, did the career look um, like from that point? 
Uh, at the end of the doc program in uh, psychology, you've got a year-long internship, which is basically uh, a year placement at an agency that has a developed program and it's slave labor. So um, at that point, my wife and I were thinking, okay, where do we want to settle? Where can there be opportunities? So uh, I applied for internships here in uh, Denver since we knew the area, had some family uh, living around here. So we came here, I started my internship, and then through a lot of different connections, ended up meeting a guy who was uh, part of a Christian counseling practice that was about five years old. And uh, when I got done with my internship, he asked me if I wanted to come on board, and I've been there ever since. Okay. And with Denver Seminary, you started teaching here uh, on an adjunct basis or a part-time basis yeah, right, at I, first? Okay, uh, it's it's been a growth process or a change. I started uh, probably about 1994, did adjuncted one course because I knew somebody who was doing something and they wanted me to kind of give them a hand in the marriage and family course. Um, I did a brief therapy course. So I did a couple bit here and there. Then 2003, um, literally, I was going through a time when I needed to make some changes. I'd been doing some really heavy-duty uh, trauma counseling with uh, victims of school shootings and things mm. like that. And mm. I knew I needed to step back a little bit from that. Um, and so I kind of said, okay, what am I going to do at that at that point? Um, I'd heard kind of through the grapevine that uh, Densem was needing some help in the counseling division because the um, there were a couple of people going on sabbatical. So I literally walked into the chair's office, Jim Beck, who was a guy I'd known off and on. He'd gone to Rosemead, and I said, hey, here's what I hear. Uh, can I help you out? He literally handed me a piece of paper and said, yeah, here's what we need filled. What do you want to do? <laughs> and I said, okay, that's fun. I'll do this and this, and then next semester I'll do this and this. How's that work out? That's fine. And so I started that and then kind of continued doing adjunct there for a while, took a year off, moved into what I thought was going to be a taking a position as somebody retired, got asked to be the interim chair, um, and just kind of kept moving on up uh, from there. Yeah, that's kind of the way to do it, isn't it? And that's been a bit of my own story. You just find more and more things to do and different handholds, and mm -hmm. before too long, they don't know how to get rid of you. <laughs> You know, I never you thought just, about you just it sort, that you way. You just sort of kind of creep your way in, uh, un, unbeknownst to people, and then all of a sudden you're just part of the woodwork and they don't know how to get rid of you. That, uh, this, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. Well, I wish I could say very that was my strategy, but, that, but it worked. <laughs> okay, I want to dive right into what is you know, probably a thicket uh, in a lot of ways. And w within the body of Christ at large, particularly – uh, those in, in more biblically anchored, biblically committed circles, the whole domain of counseling is a, is a controversial question. You've just got people up and down the spectrum with different opinions on uh, how counseling should be done, in some cases, whether it's even a thing that's biblically permissible, how all of that interfaces with or relates to um, biblical truth, biblical commitments. Mm -hmm. And that I know uh, you and your colleagues in our counseling division have given a lot of thought to that over the years, wrestled with that. 
And we'd love to hear some of your reflections on how does how does the practice, the discipline of counseling or therapeutic ministries relate to um, the, the set of biblical values that sometimes are put in conflict with that? Sure. Well, I think um, one of the things that I go back to in terms of conceptualizing and looking at uh, that whole area and the applicability to individuals is uh, a lot of the New Testament, and especially um, some of Paul's injunctions, some of his comments at the end of some of the epistles, where he talks a lot about one another, you know, bear one another's burdens, um, the connection, you know, help these women who are not getting along with each other. And uh, I conceptualize counseling, especially for the believer, as a piece of, if you want to call it, for some individuals, the discipleship process. Um, that uh, we live in a world where, you know, people purposely sin because of the sin nature. We live in a broken world where people are impacted by sin. We live in a world where some people get other uh, individuals' poor choices and sin, if you would, dumped on them. And there's a time for some individuals, they need someone more experienced to walk alongside them as they deal with all of that stuff. So it's really part of the, the for, so not, and I'm not saying everybody needs counseling, I want to be clear on that, but uh, for some individuals, it becomes a piece of how they grow, how they get more solid in their, and consistent in their life, how they deal with a broken world. So why, why is it, or maybe what is it, about the field of counseling that creates such misgivings with a lot mm -hmm. of believers. Yeah, I think some of it stems back to the early days of the development of psychology, or modern psychology, I would say, late 1800s, early to mid-1900s. There are a lot of theorists who are very antagonistic to anything faith-based. Um, seeing uh, the idea of God as something that uh, is a crutch that people have kind of made up in their minds and decided was a good way to uh, define life. So you have a lot of theories uh, like that. You have uh, some applications, in, especially in the 1960s era, that are just plain ludicrous, uh, bordering on immoral activities and things like that. So you've got branches within the psychology world that are just antithetical to uh, scripture or functioning in a biblically consistent manner. So when we, uh, one of the phrases that's often used is the integration of yeah. scripture and counseling, and not everybody means the same thing by that, mm -hmm. I understand, but you know, on one end of a spectrum, you have, have some who will use a phrase, biblical counseling. Sure. And you know, when you, when you frame it that way, that's almost a conversation stopper because who's going to naysay a biblical approach to counseling, right. but it seems like what is often meant by that phrase, biblical counseling, is more of a uh, confrontive approach where you take a, a biblical principle mm -hmm. or a biblical text and um, con confront that yeah. and just call for change. Yeah. And then in other places along the spectrum, you have versions of integration of Scripture and counseling that— sure. You know, some people think, well, you're still giving way here. You're fudging. You're compromising here. You're, you know, what, what do we mean by that? So I guess what I'm getting at, Monty, is how do you understand the, the, the faithful integration of biblical truth and 
counseling, even if it sometimes makes use of various theories sure. that come from other places. Yeah. How do you integrate that? Well, I mean, there, there's several different um, perspectives to take. First of all, you know, I would broaden out that idea of integration a little bit from what you've said. It's not just the integration of biblical truth or taking biblical truth and finding a way to practically use it in light of counseling methodologies that are research-based and we know work, but it's biblical truth It, um, in the sense of scripture. It's theological ideas, perspectives, conceptualizations, and it's spiritual practices or the spiritual life. I think all of those are a piece of the integrated process. Um, when we broaden things out, there's the idea uh, that we get in scripture of general revelation, that God's revealed truth to the world. Um, not enough for salvation, but enough to understand you know, his presence in the world, uh, functioning. And I think there's also, we see in Scripture, just some basic ideas of this is how life works. God's designed it. And so when I'm looking at the integrative side, I'm looking at, you know, what do I know that works? If I look at research and say, I can pretty much say that if I take this approach and do this, it's going to be helpful here, and here's why. I see a lot of that as just the, uh, kind of broadly under the umbrella of general revelation, the idea that there is truth in the world, not enough necessarily for salvation, but there are uh, ways that God has revealed how life works. And so we're trying to use those in a wise, um, wise mindset informed from a biblical understanding and perspective. One thing I've heard a number of people um say almost in pushback form is that when we're working in this arena of general revelation or mm -hmm. what we sometimes call common grace sure god's common grace for all humankind uh, when you're simply trying to help life work better for people uh, apart from any commitment they may mm -hmm. have to jesus christ uh, how have you wrestled with this pushback people will sometimes give about uh, how you're actually helping people be more happy or life work better for them without leading them to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I, how do you I reconcile would, that? Yeah, I would push uh, that a little bit uh, with the idea that we sometimes explicitly uh, witness, if you want to call it that, uh, explicitly express biblical truth. Other times we do it implicitly by who we are and how we live. Um, and I, f I want to be consistent in all of that. When I go to the grocery store, I don't necessarily think, how am I going to be a better Christian in the grocery store? But I do hope that You're just I, looking for the best price on the potatoes, Absolutely, right? <laughs> right. You know, trying to be good financial management. Where are the sales? Absolutely. But I hope that how I am there reflects who I am as a believer. I don't think we can take Scripture, my, our relationship with God, and put it into a compartment. I think it infuses who we are. And that as I continue to grow in my walk, uh, you know, my mindset, my attitude, my personality, all of those are influenced by it. If I go in the grocery store, you know, I want to be consistent with who I am. In the counseling room, I want to be consistent as a believer, whether I have to say something about Scripture or I don't. And I've seen people who have been massively antagonistic to anything spiritual 
um, start to make some significant changes. You know, I'm honest about who I am. I've been a pastor. I've worked in churches. I let people know that right off the, uh, right off the bat. And I've had people who say, okay, that's great, but I'm not interested in talking about spiritual things. How do I relate to that person as a believer with somebody who doesn't? Do I quote scripture at them? And I will if that's appropriate. But if that's going to push them away, can I woo them into an acceptance? And I've had people after five, six sessions start to say, who have been very antagonistic, say, hey, well, you know, what do you think the Bible might say about this or something mm. equivalent to that? Mm. Well, if we put it in missional terms, oh yeah, what, what, what place does uh, what place does it have in the mission of God mm-hmm. to help people who may not embrace the gospel? Yeah. Simply help life work better for them, help sure. them get along better, help their families and their relationships to work better, help them be healthy, more, more, more healthy, functional mm-hmm. people. What, what, does, what place does that have, do you think, in the mission of God? Yeah. Well, if you look, you go, way, go back to the 1970s, there was a missions book called What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, but he, he proposed uh, the idea that um, evangelism was more than simply uh, or broader than simply a person making a professed decision of faith. That's a piece of it. But they, but he put it on uh, almost a Likert scale from one to ten, hmm. where one is the point of conversion, and one is where an individual says, "Okay, I'm moving into a, a faith life now." Ten is the person who's the most antagonistic. Evangelism is not just moving that; it's moving toward that. So, moving from a ten, a negative ten, to a negative six, a person is becoming more receptive to gospel truth, and that part of evangelism is that concept. When I'm working with individuals and I work in a way that makes them more receptive to biblical truth, that's a piece of God's kingdom work. And, you know, Paul talks about one person waters, another person reaps. I've got to trust that God knows what he's doing in the process. And so my job is to you know, try as much as possible to go where he leads and open up the process knowing that he it's more concerned about in that individual than I ever will be, and he's got plans, and he's doing what he's doing in their life, and I'm just a piece of that. That is that is kind of freeing. It is liberating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, I have seen that evangelism scale. I, I think mm-hmm. a number of people have used some kind of a scale, yeah, um, imagery for uh, looking at pre-evangelism work or just the, the 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 things we can do that God may make use of to bring a person to Himself. Sure. Um, but that may not be quite as overt or explicit as some other classically understood evangelistic mm-hmm. acts. I want, I want to shift and talk a little bit about um, some of the significant learnings or maybe even changes of mind you've experienced over your career. D- download us a little bit on what you've what you've learned. Oh. This is you're asking things that are that can be very random and kind of scattered. And you got thirty seconds to tell us everything you've learned. (laughs) Everything I have learned. Um, So I I, like say I went to Denver Seminary. I came out of here having taken a lot of Greek, which I hate to admit I do not remember anymore. 
took Hebrew, enjoyed the languages, got into more of an expository um, and kind of an analytical approach to Scripture, which was really great. But I got to the point where that became a little bit rote, and it started to lose its freshness. And so one of the things I ended up doing is moving more in an experiential direction, personally, and realizing that, and I want to be really clear, I still see the value of, you know, biblical translation, uh, exegesis of passages and all that. But from my own experience, I moved, for my own self, I moved into more of an experiential place uh, where um, I looked at some formational techniques and realizing that I needed to keep my foundation of a good, solid theology, a good, solid biblical understanding, and that I could build on that to kind of deepen my own spiritual life. So along the way, I've changed a lot of my reading, uh, my understanding of readings, things like that. I mean, that's one place to start with. Okay. When, if you were, if you were to let a seminary student or maybe future seminary students behind the scenes of seminary life, what would you want them to see? What would you want them to know? Mm, depends a little bit on what you mean behind the scenes of seminary life. <laughs> well, you, you pick. Ah. You pick. What, what, what would you love for seminary students to know about what goes on the behind the scenes? Boy, I don't know if I've ever thought about something like that I know, that I didn't before. set you up for this one. I, I sprung <laughs> this one on you. That you did. Um, when I think of that from a faculty perspective, I would love for them to see the richness that goes on between different faculty members, uh, the ability to build relationships, to... Uh, bring faith into their own lives in some really unique ways. In other words, uh, living out a biblical life is not only the knowledge, though that's important. Um, it is the little nuances and the pieces of our character and who we are that come out, the ability to laugh, the ability to enjoy each other's company, the ability to uh, ponder wild and crazy ideas that may make no difference but are just fun to delve into. <laughs> fun ideas. Yeah, I'd love to see them do that. I'd love to see them um, learn to loosen up a little bit. Uh, we have a no, lot of... No, when you say them, are you talking about the students. your faculty colleagues or the students? No, not students. I think the <laughs> okay. faculty, are, no, some of the ones I know are loose enough already. <laughs> Yeah, that, that doesn't fit the stereotype most people have about seminary faculty, okay? but I don't think Denver Seminary's faculty fits that stereotype uh, in a lot of ways, which I think healthy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we have students who are um, very compulsive about grades and some things like that. And there's a time when some people need to be that way, especially if they're going to go on to, let's say, a doctoral program. But beyond that, I would hope they would see uh, me, see other individuals who know how to take that serious, but also keep things balanced. Has that been a shift in your own life and career, this progressive loosening up? 
Oh, I think I've always been loose. <laughs> okay. I grew, I grew well, you in, are from California, right? I grew up in, in Southern California <laughs> in the 1960s. You know. Oh, uh, so you had to go the other way. You had to kind of get some rails to run on in your life. Just, didn't you? just a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, but not not too bad. I mean, when I when I came to faith, it was in a conservative Baptist church that okay. had a few had, had enough rails. Okay. <laughs> oh my, when. When you think about those who are are headed for um, ministry in a therapeutic profession, yeah, like like counseling, what do they need to be thinking about? Um, come back to what I've said a couple times already. They need to be aware of the need for a strong theological and biblical foundation. That may never be something they explicitly talk about. But if they are going to be uh, consistent believers in a very secular world, they need that foundation to keep themselves grounded. And they need to be aware that that will come come into play in ways they've got no clue about, that they just have to trust that it's going to happen. I've had so many times when I've talked with clients in the counseling room where we have not been talking explicitly anything spiritual or scriptural, and yet there will be perspectives from Scripture that I share with them. I may not say directly, Bible says this, but you know I might look at Philippians two with Christ's emptying, and talk with a married couple about, you know, what does it look like to not hold on to your rights in the marriage but rather live in a way that uh, recognizes the rights of the other one. And can you trust what that process will do in you and for your marriage? Um, You know, those things come from what I've known, what I've learned, my exposure to Scripture over the years. Uh, I think somebody who is going to work in the counseling field as a believer needs to be aware of the subtle work of God. Um, that God works in ways that we don't expect, and we have to trust that he's going to do that and be ready to be part of that. For example, um, I've got numerous times when I've got this something that just kind of pops into my mind, and I'll say something to a client, and they'll get this kind of quizzical look on their face and say, you know what, you're the third person that said that to me. Um, Mm. You know, God works through those things without us not necessarily knowing it, but we've got to get used to how to push forward with some of that tacit stuff, if you want to call it that, of the yeah. spirit working within us. Yeah. Well, that that's the surprise element, and maybe from a, from a counselor's vantage point, that's the capacity for surprise, the mm-hmm. capacity to... Uh, see the Lord working in ways that are a bit off-grid or out of our expectations yeah. and then run with that. Yeah, and I think we also have to be aware, um, this is a little bit of my own theorization, but of how the Holy Spirit works. Um, and, and I realize this is not uh, great biblical interpretation. It's more of an example. But when you look at uh, Jesus' conversation with uh, Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. John 3. Yeah. He talks about the Spirit and compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. You don't see it, but you see the effects. I think that's the way the Spirit works in our lives, that we oftentimes will see the effects, but we don't necessarily see it going on. 
Uh, to push it a little bit further, and, and again, this is total theorization, I sometimes uh, really think that uh, the Spirit works in us in a maybe uh, not recognizable manner initially. So if you want to break it down and get a little technical, but uh, pretty basic, you know, we talk about right brain, left brain. And that's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. That's a pretty simplistic way to describe uh, neurofunctioning. But there is a piece of the, of the human uh, experience, human brain, that is nonverbal, that works in a nonverbal way. I mean, sure, we've all had the experience of, can't remember something, I'll forget about it, and then all of a sudden it pops in. Yeah. Where does that come from? That comes from the nonverbal processing that our brains are crossing over. Can we theorize, does the spirit work in the nonverbal? Does the spirit work in that piece that we don't, we cannot consciously explain, and yet then we see the effects, like the wind, coming out, into a recognizable place, coming out to an urging to do something. Yeah, yeah. for those of us, I'm speaking for a friend here, not for myself, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for friends of mine who happen to like, uh, you know, a lot of control and definition and predictability, mm-hmm. that's a little unsettling. It is. <laughs> and um, I would say— So is that a growing edge for this friend of mine that I have in mind? Probably. I, I, you know, I would say that uh, a God is unsettling. Yeah, you think? Um, I've, one of the things I've learned through the years, forget about trying to guess what he's going to do. Yeah. Uh, I have no clue. Yeah. But I need to be ready and open to recognizing it. Mm. So I might want to be structured in a counseling session. I might want to be implementing good techniques, but I've always got to leave room for the unexpected and be looking for that. I love that. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, a uh, quote by uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning that I love. Um, and actually, Eugene Peterson used it in one of his books in the Conversations of Spiritual Theology. Yeah. He, he, she, he, she says, uh, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. Hmm. And then she ends it with, and the rest sit around and pluck back blackberries. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that idea that, that you know, God has infused the world. His presence is there. Can we step back and keep ourselves open to looking for it? And responsive to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Monty, as you think about retirement, moving on from Denver Seminary, what, what's maybe one or two things you really hope will be part of your legacy? Part of my legacy. Um, a valuing of scripture as something that gives us guidance and hope and inspiration and foundation and a lot of those things that we've talked about. Uh, I hope also that there is a a, a legacy of spontaneity and imagination. Hmm. What's out there that's fun? What are the, the quirky things that we can get into sometimes that turn out to be productive and sometimes they're just the serendipity uh, that God has blessed us with? I can appreciate that because in the years you and I have served here together, I can say honestly, you're a lot of fun. 
<laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. You really are. And this this has been a fun conversation. We're going to draw this to a close. Okay. Monty, Monty, thanks. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks for the just the years of service and investment in so many lives around this place. It's yeah. been a joy. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here and this opportunity. It's really has given me a chance to reflect a little bit on where I am and where I'm going. I hope it's really really been satisfying and continues to be satisfying for you in whatever the next chapter is. Yeah, thank you very much. Friends, this has been Engage 360, again, from Denver Seminary, and we're really grateful to you for spending a little time with us. I want to express gratitude again to Krista Ebert, who is our sound engineer and editor, Andrea Wayand and Maritza Smith, uh, who make so much of this happen behind the scenes as well. We're grateful for them and all of you. If you'd like to communicate with us, please do so by email. Our address is podcast at denverseminary.edu. We hope you'll check out our website, which is, I believe, under redesign and going to be relaunched soon. So there'll be a lot of of good stuff there for you, whether you're a student or a supporter or someone who's interested, or maybe you know somebody at Denver Seminary. Uh, So we look forward to interacting with you further. And until next time, I'm Don Payne. Take care.